like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty Hello of and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Andrew Falkowski, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Taylor Sparks. And this episode, it's just us. Jared is away doing who knows what, and so I am at the uh, recording reins. Hopefully I don't screw it up. In this case, if the audio sounds bad, you can blame me. How's it going, Taylor? Life's good, man. How are you doing? It is so hot here. The heat bubble on the western United States, we are not exempt from that. It's 105 degrees in freedom units, whatever that is in Celsius. It's unbearable today. Yeah, the interesting drama of using the shed is that in the winter it's freezing cold, <laughs> and in the summer it's uh, it's way too hot. But we finally managed to get a hold of uh, or get a handle on the bird situation. You don't hear them anymore, but they're they're going off. They are. They're going bananas in there. And good thing you can't hear the sound of sweat because it would be loud in here. Okay, before we get going, I just want to do this quick plug for this really, really cool announcement. So if you're listening, if you know of a K-12 through high school teacher or something like that, middle school teacher, and you thought to yourself, man, I wish that teacher would have taught me about material science before I got to college because I never even heard of it. Boy, do we have something exciting for you. We are thrilled to announce that the American Ceramic Society, great people over there, they have decided to sponsor the giveaway of free uh, teacher's kits. And this isn't like one in a thousand people or one in a hundred people are going to win. This is every teacher who signs up is eligible to get one of these kits, which is so cool. So obviously while supplies last, but they have quite a bit. They've been made possible by generous donors. You can get a hold of one of these kits if you just tell your teacher, whoever teaches your K-12 classes or right back to them, tell them go to teachmaterialscience.org. That's one word, teachmaterialscience.org. If you'll go there, you'll see a big red box that says Materialism Podcast Listeners. Click here, and it'll have a sign-up. It's just going to want your name, the school, what grade you teach, what kind of classes you teach. What they're going to send you is a really cool kit of material science demonstrations. You're going to love this stuff. It's things like fiber optics and little tiny you know, piezoelectrics and things of this nature, which are going to make it really fun to teach material science to high school-age kids. It's meant to be really sort of phenomenon-based learning where it's an interesting phenomenon you observe and you think about what could be going on. I wish that I would have seen this when I was in high school. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, that would have been great. I mean, I knew about chemistry and physics, but it wasn't really until a random Wikipedia search that I found out about material science. So this is a great resource. You should definitely uh, go to that link if you have the uh, resource or if you know someone who, who, who should have those resources. Yeah, so again, they're giving out several kits. They've got a larger one, the Material Science Classroom Kit. They've got a mini materials kit with LEDs and whatnot in there. And then they've got also free lessons that you can use if you want to teach lessons on this. They've done all the hard work for you to prepare your lesson plans for these things. Um, and even study guides from the book Magic Ceramics, who was written by my ceramics teacher, uh, David Richardson, back when I was a, an undergraduate. So I think this is really cool stuff. I think you should check it out. Again, that's teachmaterialscience.org. And thank you so much for American Ceramics Society for making this giveaway possible. Well, today we got a rad episode. It was requested by several people already, and it's something that I worked on 20 years ago, briefly, when I was an intern at Ceramitech. Here, I'll set the stage for you. I walked in the lab one day, 
and I see I see like a white sort of ceramic tile mounted on the tabletop, and I see a dude with a blowtorch just going ham on this thing, just trying to nuke it. And I just thought to myself, like, what a strange world I live in. I don't know what's happening there, but I'm going to walk right past it. That was my first introduction to today's topic. What are we talking about today, Andrew? Today we're talking about geopolymers. My first introduction was actually in Taylor's Introduction to Material Science and Engineering class where he Googled it and then informed us that he's one of 12 people who has ever Googled that. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, I had no idea what these were, but they're surprisingly interesting materials and they might have the potential to solve one of our pressing infrastructural needs. Yeah, and you're you're not exaggerating that. Like when you think about humanity's challenge... We all know at this point that global warming, climate change, these are big deals that we need to address. But we're never going to do that unless we take dramatic changes to one of the biggest causes of it, which is the materials all around us. And what is the number one man-made material, the one that is used in more quantity than anything else? Now, before you say steel, it is not steel. It is not aluminum. It is concrete, right? Concrete, Portland cement, holy moly. What's the numbers on this, Andrew? Uh, I think in 2018, we used about 4 billion tons of cement in uh, in terms of industrial applications. A lot of this growth, right, that's that's up from 1.5 billion tons uh, a little over a decade prior. And a lot of that growth is due to China industrializing um, quite rapidly and significantly. They're starting to taper off, but now we're starting to see Southeast Asia, yeah. parts of Africa industrializing, and what's the go-to material? Cement. I saw this article, this one I'm reading, it says in 2017, China was doing 60% of the world's consumption. And then associated with that, it's 175 million tons of coal gets used to make the, the concrete, right? When they make this Portland cement, you, have, you need a source of energy, you need a source of carbon. So they're using coal, 175 million tons. They're using 2 billion tons of limestone as well as clay and other resources. So it's not just the CO2 emissions, it's also using resources, right? So I mean, now... We, we want a better world. We want a better life. So it's not like we're going to stop using concrete and cement. But if there's the chance to reduce it, even by a little bit, when you're talking about such huge volume, it would be amazing. And today, we're not talking about a tool to reduce it by a little bit. We're talking about something that could potentially have a massive impact on the CO2 emissions, on the, on the raw resources being used. By one estimate, geopolymers, this uh, article I'm reading, says that um, during the production of one kilogram of geopolymer cement, which would be now replacing Portland cement, uh, it says just about one-fifth of the ordinary Portland cement uh, would be used. And to put that into perspective, for every gram of Portland cement that's created, we also output a gram of CO2. So it's a one-to-one ratio. Oh, gosh. So for all this consumption and use that's being around right 4 billion tons annually that equates to 4 billion tons of co2 just from the reaction alone that's not including all the coal and other things that are burning so it's a major driver yeah so how much better can it be with geopolymers well by different estimates it obviously depends on what your starting materials are and all that jazz but regularly estimates come in at you know one sixth the amount of co2 one one quarter just drastic, drastic improvement. So if this is all as good as we say, how come you've never heard of it until today's episode, right? How come we're not building the foundations of our homes and our sidewalks and roads and buildings out of this? Well, there's some catches, right? We're going to talk about a little bit of that today on why this hasn't quite caught fire, but why it might be in the near future. Before we even get into how geopolymers are going to maybe reshape our industrial material supply or even what they are and how they're made, maybe we should talk a little bit about the history. So interestingly enough, like all 
great, interesting materials. It was found way before its true properties were realized back in the uh, early 1950s when people were smarter than us. And by the Soviets, no less, who discovered basically everything first. Exactly. So we have Viktor Glukovsky uh, in the USSR, and he creates these essentially alkaline-activated cementitious materials. He calls them soil cements, um, but little was known about them. But his main contribution to the eventual research that would lead to the coining of the term geopolymers was that he recognized that the formation of solidification products from alkali-activated slag elements. So essentially, something solidifies when you dissolve um, different minerals in an alkaline environment. So just to take a quick step back, this is different than cement, right? Remember cement, there's a whole process of, you know, the clinker and the grinding and all that jazz. Um, but then you're adding water into hydration reaction, right? That's causing that. This is different. Andrew said something important there, that it's a dissolution and a precipitation, right? You're dissolving something and it's precipitating again. That's at the heart of geopolymers. But, you know, in the 50s, they didn't understand that. They just knew that it was different starting materials. It wasn't until around the 70s that we get Joseph Davidovitz, French scientist, who becomes like the godfather of geopolymers. This guy is, you know... (laughs) <laughs> he is the man when it comes to geopolymers. He, he literally wrote the book on it. Um, his book is actually fantastic. I will put a, a link to it. You can read the first chapter on his website. But in terms of textbooks, a lot of them are often very difficult to approach, but I, I think he did a good job. So if he's listening, good job, Davidovitz. Um, interesting little note about him before we continue about his story. He has this interesting theory about how the pyramids were built. It's not aliens, but it's a little more scientific. His theory was that trying to move these massive carved stone blocks would be seemingly impossible, even if you had a massive workforce to try to do this. And so he postulates that, in reality, they actually formed a... um, A man-made concrete. Yeah, They cast it. Uh, Almost a a premature or immature form of cement, and that they were able to cast it on site on top of blocks. And he did this whole study where he got six of his friends to try to make this stuff using the same materials that they would have had access to. And um, they say it took, you know, in, in about a week, they could form a couple ton blocks with just six people. So that's his theory for how these were created. Now, he acknowledges that there are some granite blocks in the top of the pyramid or above the king's chamber. Uh, and those are carved. He doesn't think those were made. But for a majority of the blocks, he suggests that they actually uh, made these out of a cement. Yeah. And to be fair, a lot of people disagree with this notion. And they'll say, you know, there's no way it could have. It's too porous or it's not porous enough. I can't remember their argument. They claim that they found a mineral quarry nearby that sort of closely matches it. And he's saying, well, what if they ground that up and use that as the aggregate in the concrete? So anyway, in my mind, jury's out. But it's a certainly interesting a topic. And this guy, regardless of the blocks has a major contribution. It'd be sad if he's only known for the Egyptian block, you know, kerfuffle. That said, he really is invested in this Egyptian block thing. You go to his website, the Geopolymer Institute, and it's all these articles about Egypt. (laughs) 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 Rather than that. uh, And he got got backed up, right? This isn't just, you know, one academic going off there. Michael Barsoom from Drexel University. Well-known guy. Yeah, pretty famous. Actually backs him up. He takes um, some of these samples, looks at them under an SEM, and he discovers that there's all of these uh, air bubbles that wouldn't occur in natural limestone, uh, pointing that there's there's something going on with the rock, and maybe maybe Davidovitz is, is close. Yeah, pretty interesting. So, Andrew, what is a geopolymer? Because I've heard it done different ways. Now, all I know is that when I was a, an intern at Ceramitech 20 years ago, 
it was something where most of the ceramics I was working were cast refractory ceramics. So they were castables, right? We would mix them together in a slurry, typically water-based. Very rarely was it something other than water. We would obviously cast it. You have to get that water out. You'd either cast it into a plaster Paris dye or it would dry out the top or bottom, right? It's this whole process. But then my colleagues, you know, in the other half of the lab were making these geopolymers. And I remember they had giant, giant beakers of like KOH, NaOH, these really caustic things. They'd mix it in and there wasn't water to worry about. It would just sort of set. So that is important part of geopolymer, geopolymers. But what is the definition of these things? Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, the more literature articles I read, the less I actually understood <laughs> about what a geopolymer is. I, I really... I really started unlearning uh, things the more that I read because when this topic was invented, like all very new scientific inventions, everyone wants to jump on. Everyone wants to get that article that can get cited 200 times or so because it was that first article. But there wasn't any established conventions for how we're going to name these things, what they actually are. And so a lot of the articles that you read are just kind of all over the place and it, it really isn't until much later in the literature that we start to get a consensus on it yeah um and the problem is that people are approaching it from their different perspectives right with these uh alumina silicates we'll see a ceramicist will look at them and say okay that's alumina silica and water or and then a chemist will look at it and it's oh si205al2oh4 but neither of these really capture the sense of what it is, right? We're calling this a geopolymer. So in some sense, it's a, a polymer like we're familiar with, but it's made out of mineral, yeah. common mineral materials instead. So rather, using a polymeric notation ends up making a lot more sense, it especially does. when we consider the reactions. That yeah, I was just going to say, because like a polymer, which is made up of, you have your reactant monomers, which typically break down and then there's a chain reaction. It's, it's rather akin to that, but it's with inorganic materials now. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's not that far-fetched of a concept either, right? If we look at carbon, which is the backbone and the basis for most polymer chemistry, right? It can bond. It's tetravalent. It can bond to four, um, four other species. Silicon is just below it in the periodic table, so it makes sense that it should have a similar behavior, but it's a little bit different. When it bonds to four hydrogens, it's a pretty unstable and rather unsafe, actually toxic. Yeah. Well, here's one definition that I like. So this is coming from the Wikipedia article. It says the reaction produces, any sort of geopolymer is one where the reaction produces SiO4 and AlO4 tetrahedra. Those don't have to be in equal amounts, and we'll get to that in a moment, but those both have to be there. So you've got these little four, you know, uh, four-sided bond building blocks, right? When they bond to one another, they're now sharing an oxygen. That's a key component. That's how you're going to form the polymer is this sharing of oxygens between these different groups. It says the tetrahedral frameworks are linked by shared oxygens in polysilates or polysilate siloxyl or polysilate disiloxyl. We'll get to those in a moment. Depending on the SiO2, Al2O3 ratio in the system, the connection of the tetrahedral frameworks is occurring via long-range covalent bonds. The geopolymer structure is thus perceived as a dense amorphous phase, not crystalline, amorphous, consisting of semi-crystalline 3D aluminosilicate microstructure. Yeah, there's a lot in that definition that maybe we want to unpack here really quick, right? You brought up these tetrahedral um, silicates. That makes sense. But then you also brought up tetrahedral aluminate. <laughs> yeah, right. That I thought it was a typo when I was reading this. I was like, I was like they mean octahedras, right? Like alumina octahedra. But no, it's, it's tetrahedra. It's a small ion, so it's not surprising that it can. It's just not as typical. But it does have a charge imbalance, and that's where the solution that they make these come in. Um, by having other 
positive ions in the solution to balance out that charge, it allows for this normally unstable structure to be able to exist for long enough for it to then bond. Yeah, I like the ceramic The ceramic definition listed here says, they're a class of totally inorganic aluminosilicate-based ceramics that are charge-balanced by group 1 oxides. Because you're, you're absolutely right. The aluminum is 3+, plus; it's missing a charge. But if you've got group 1 elements like sodium, potassium, or something, that's going to compensate for it. And it says they're rigid gels, which are made under relatively ambient conditions of temperature and pressure and near net dimension bodies. That's pretty exciting. You don't have to worry as much about shrinkage here, which can be converted to uh, crystalline or glass ceramics if you heat them up. The other thing you mentioned were the silates or polysilates, polysilate siloxos. Maybe you want to touch on those a little bit. Those are essentially our monomer units if we're going to draw an analogy to um, polymer chemistry the basic building blocks that are going to form our structures. Yeah, so Davidovitz, he was the one who introduced this first classification of those. He said that there's sort of three types. You've got what he called polysilate, PS, and that's one where the building block of this network structure is is silicon, oxygen, aluminum, right? So if it's an alternating bond like that, that would be like your traditional sort of block copolymer where there's a block of silicon oxygen and then a block of like aluminum oxygen, right? So that's that's one type of building block. And then he's also got polysilate siloxo, PSS. This is silicon oxygen, aluminum oxygen, silicon. So it's sort of a two-to-one silicon to aluminum ratio. And then the last one would be polysilate disiloxo, that's PSDS. And that is silicon oxygen, aluminum oxygen, silicon oxygen, silicon. So it's three silicons to one aluminum. So it's technically, it's, there's different ratios. And that makes sense because when it comes to starting materials in the earth, it's not like all compounds have a fixed ratio of aluminum to silicon. They, they range all over the place. And so it makes sense that when these things form geopolymers, there could be a wide range of different building blocks to start from. And so this is the nomenclature that he's come up with for them. So far, we've been talking and alluding a little bit to how these things are made and some of their components, but let's actually break down the the true steps to making these. Now, if you go into the literature, you're going to get confused. And maybe it's just me, but like half the articles will just assume that you already know how it works and just kind of touch on some of the key points before moving on to something else they want to talk about. Or they'll get like one step in and then deviate for five <laughs> pages talking about the thermodynamic principles of um, silates forming and what sort of structures will form before they finally attempt to get back to the other steps that you actually care about. But if we're actually thinking about it, we can look at this in terms of three main steps. We have dissolution, gelation, and then polycondensation. Uh, Taylor, what's happening in the dissolution? Yeah, state? so before you actually dissolve it, let's talk about the raw minerals. And we'll get to these later, what the names are and what the starting ones are. But essentially, these are small-ish molecules. Think like 20 to 30 atoms in size, made up of silicon, oxygen, aluminum, right? Maybe some hydroxide groups and things like that. So orthosilate orthosilate siloxo, things like that. These are your starting minerals you're starting with. These are small molecules. Think of these like Lego bricks without like the little bumps on them so they can't connect to one another. That's basically where we're at right now. Now we dissolve them by adding something strong. Uh, you're in the high pH base region. So adding things like sodium hydroxide, potassium hydroxide is enough to start breaking these otherwise quite strong bonds. And now you're basically adding the bumps to your Lego pieces. These, by dissolving you now break them up into smaller units of these SiO4, AlO4 building blocks that can start to connect by sharing oxygens one with another. Right, these are the monomer units. And this takes us right into the gelation phase where these do start connecting and forming our oligomers, forming slightly more complex structures like polysilates and such. That's the SiO, AlO structure or any of the other ones depending on the ratios that are available. And so eventually um, we get enough 
enough of a complex mixture that it becomes super saturated and we start to form these ligamers and it, it ends up behaving more like a gel. Yeah, and it's not crystalline, right? So it's not like these are all six-membered rings or four or five. Like It's a truly three-dimensional but amorphous crystal structure at this point. Yeah, exactly. And, and most of these bonds are coming together by a polycondensation reaction. And eventually, by repeatedly trying to expel all of the water from within this network that's slowly forming, eventually you get a full solid. And that's when we get our, um, just by the process of these ligamers connecting, our full geopolymerization. But it's worth noting that this doesn't happen slow. In fact, it happens yeah. incredibly rapidly to the point where it wasn't until much later after these were discovered that they were able to even isolate what process was happening. Yeah, it's like the last couple decades that we really started to get a handle on this. Yeah, because the reaction happened so fast that the NMR machine, to even try to read what bonds were present and what was forming, couldn't keep up with it. They had to run this experiment at like 9 degrees Celsius in order for it to be slow enough for uh, these bonds to even be observable. Right, because this isn't extra diffraction. You're not relying on long-range order, so you have to look at short-range order, and it's just a slower process to make, make those sort of local area measurements. You mentioned a lot about different activators that are used, right? We talked about... NaOH and KOH, um, but you know not all activators are created equal, and these have different trade-offs in terms of um, their final properties and the effect on the geopolymers. Kind of just like different reaction mechanisms or, or temperatures or processing conditions for regular polymers. With NaOH, the sodium ion is actually much smaller than that of the potassium ion, and the advantage of that is now the sodium ion can migrate through this network that's forming. So you actually end up getting a faster reaction time, and the material will achieve a high strength much quicker uh, with sodium hydroxide. However, it's found that the final aged material ends up being poorer in general. So it reaches a high strength quickly, but then when it comes to reading, uh, when it comes to reaching its final strength, it ends up being not quite as good as potassium hydroxide. That makes sense because one of the big criticisms I read about geopolymers is the fact that they have poor workability because they set so fast, especially relative to concrete, right? You don't step on concrete for several days after casting it. And yet this stuff within hours, it can be like 90% of its strength, you know, very, very quickly. But that's a problem because now imagine you're trying to work with this stuff and it's setting up, it's getting thick, its workability is changing pretty rapidly. So you're going to end up with knit lines and pores and defects, which would inhibit your ultimate strength, even though it's setting up quickly and gaining strength in the early days. Now, how's that compared to things like potassium hydroxide or sodium silicate? Sure, potassium hydroxide offers better final properties. Their compressive strengths are significantly better than that with sodium hydroxide. And they also add a nice uh, amount of porosity to the material as well. Um, that It's much more even and much more uniform and controlled. So potassium hydroxide really is the more desirable um, activator in terms of final properties. Now, they've also attempted to use sodium sulfate, um, but these, these typically just don't work out nearly as well. Um, they, they tend to, to produce materials with poor uh, compressive strengths and, and other I issues and flaws, but they'll add other things like sodium silicate. And the importance of adding that is because you're basically increasing the amount of silicates that are within your reaction, which helps for the ratio oh, of silicon yeah, to so aluminum. It, yeah, it's not just an activator, but can tune your composition with that one as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's a lot of research into the different ratios of your activator to your water content to your aluminum and silicate content. And typically, having higher amounts of aluminum tends to produce uh, a poor material, uh, something that's not quite as 
um, quite as strong. And so typically you want to actually have a very high silicon to aluminum ratio. And so if you're using a raw material that has too much aluminum, um, adding this sodium silicate can be a good way to offset that in a very controlled manner. Very cool. You know, while we're talking about activators, it's interesting. Uh, some of the research articles I read in this review paper on it, they spent a ton of time actually on finding ways to slow down the activation, right? Uh, they call them retarders, right? Adding these that will slow down that process is big business. And there's different ways that they can do it. So one way is you could t- basically take the particles and just cover parts of them. So that the acid, or the, the caustic solution you're adding, the NOHKOH is not interacting with it. So there they'll use something like phosphate-based groups, which will sit on the surface and block it. Um, or carbohydrates actually take sugar, right, and other complexes, and those will also block it. Um, that's one way. So it's basically cover your particle. A- another way to retard it is to neutralize some of it, right? So even though you're adding this things like NOH or whatever, you can neutralize that. You can change the pH to reduce that a little bit to make it dissolve it a little bit more slowly. That's one option. And then the last one is complexation. You can take uh, chelating molecules, which will sort of gobble up some of the ions and slow them down because chel- chelation, the word comes from like the word, what is it, from chelos? It means like a crab claw, I think, from the Greek. And it's like a crab claw can grab onto something. These are things that grab onto the molecules from either side and then prevent them from as rapidly forming these. Comp- so it basically slows down the polymerization. It, it, they don't form their uh, transition metal or their, their metal oxide tetrahedra quite as quickly because they're tied up with chelating agents. Yeah, right. In the absence of that, it'd be too hard to work with. By the time you made it, it would have already just formed a solid. You wouldn't even be able to cast it into something. Right. Another area of research is the base materials that go into making these in the first place. There's really, I guess, three main classifications. There's two main materials that are used, but there's ongoing research to find more. The first of these is fly ash, which is a fine glassy powder that's recovered as a result of coal combustion. Uh, And these include substantial amounts of silicon dioxide um, in amorphous or crystalline form. Uh, They'll have calcium oxide, they'll have aluminum oxide, and even some iron oxide. And there's typically two classes that are of interest here. There's class F, which is an older anthracite version, uh, and that has less than 20% calcium oxide in it. And then there's the class C, which is a younger lignite version, which has more than 20% calcium oxide. And the major difference between these when it comes to geopolymers is a difference in strength of the samples. Basically, including calcium content in the raw materials doesn't necessarily hinder the reaction, but it causes noticeable degradation of the material and it reduces the workability uh, of the paste. So you get a reduction in workability and a reduction in compressive strength. The next one that's very common is metakaolin. Uh, This is produced by firing kaolin clay under carefully controlled conditions. Essentially, this is a calcination process in which they are removing and decomposing this this clay material and they're trying to create an amorphous aluminosilicate um, that could be reactive. So between 500 and 800 degrees Celsius, kaolinite becomes calcined, losing all of its water through dehydroxylization, and then it becomes something that's much more workable. So the merits of using this for geopolymers is that you get an increased boost in the compressive and flexural strengths of your materials. You can mitigate against other sort of permeability issues by getting a denser product, and it tends to increase the resistance to acid attack and generally increases the durability of the geopolymer. Um, and, you know, the main reason for this is that you get high amounts of silicon dioxide and alumina, and these are exactly what you want. You don't want too many impurities. You get a nice ratio of, of silica and alumina in these, and, and that makes it good for making geopolymers. 
Now, I already alluded to the idea of a ratio between silica and alumina as being very important. You want high silica content, you want low alumina. It's possible that other species could control and improve the networks. So when we're looking at different um, clays, maybe alternatives to metacillin or fly ash, they're basically just looking for these ratios and, and how those are present. They, the best ratio, according to one of the papers I read, is that you typically want five and a half times the amount of silica to alumina in your mineral that you're using. You, yeah, you typically want to find something with a, a, a much higher silica ratio and something with, uh, if there's any excess metals in there, you also want those to have a relatively on parity ratio with alumina as well. So finding bulk minerals that are easy to mine, easy to access, that have these properties is one of the ongoing searches to try to make geopolymers much more accessible and cheaper. Uh, remember, this is all happening in the backdrop that we're trying to get away from Portland cement, but this material is not going to outperform it. Like the goal isn't to surpass Portland cement. It's to find an acceptable version of a cement-like material, which just has way less CO2. Yeah, and it maybe offers some other flexibility because Portland cement also has some restrictions of its own. There are certain aggregates that you simply can't use with right. Portland cement. Yeah, interfaces are weaker. It sets up a lot slower. There are some downsides. It has different, this, the geopolymers have better corrosion strength, right? Because they are a more tightly bound system. It's going to be a little bit better that way. Yeah, I mean, there's there's actually only a few types of sand that are really nicely compatible with Portland cement. And interestingly enough, we're actually running out of sand, which seems kind of crazy, but there's only so many beaches and so much sand that can be used. And the sand that works best and is most compatible with Portland cement is there's only so much of it. Right, We have to wait for erosion to take its course if we want to get more of it. So finding other materials that allow us to expand to other aggregate types uh, is, is important, yeah. and geopolymers might fit that bill. But it's possible that it's not going to be geopolymers alone. In the first really commercial applications of these, they actually ended up mixing geopolymer with Portland cement, and this was to take advantage of the properties of both of them. So when we look at geopolymers, they harden very quickly, which when we're talking about trying to repair a road, for instance, is actually pretty desirable. You don't want something to harden too slow or else it could get damaged in the act of cars moving over it or some other sort of forces that are acting on it. So by including a little bit of geopolymer, you get a fast hardening portion. And then over the next several days, you know, Portland cement can take its course and its reaction and actually reach the hardness. I think f after four hours, a geopolymer will reach a compression strength of 20 megapascals, but by contrast, that takes several days for Portland cement to get to that, that strength. So maybe if we switch to geopolymers or include it as, as some sort of modifier, we can actually not have to have our roads under construction for yeah. ever. For <laughs> yeah. The eternal road construction. Now, there are a few instances where we're not using Portland cement right now, but where we might use geopolymers because they do offer something uniquely better. And the key area where I've seen that is in fireproof insulation. So imagine an instance where you have a fire and you have your normal insulation, which is, you know, polystyrene or whatever else. When the fire does destroy that polymer, now you have the noxious or toxic chemicals from that destroyed polymer, and it no longer does its job. It's now conducting heat while producing off-gassing dangerous things. So that's like, that's a, that's a bad situation. That's one of the opportunities for geopolymers. You can entrain air into them, and this is an active area of research. How do you get bubbles in there? And that's now a metastable or an unstable thermodynamic state. So you have to trap those and prevent them from agglomerating. But if you can entrain air particles into your geopolymer and get them to stay there, 
then when it sets, all of a sudden you should have a low thermal conductivity material. These air pockets are going to inhibit phonon transport and you can get low thermal conductivities, quite low actually, you know, in the 0.2 to 0.5 range while also having material which will survive up to say a thousand Celsius. So you can survive really hot fires without losing this insulative properties. And that's a unique advantage, right? That's better than glasses. That's better than lots of other things that would be in the same camp of insulation materials. Yeah, I mean, these things go up to a thousand degrees Celsius without seeing any grain growth or other degradative properties. Right, they're amorphous. Yeah, for things like ceramics might be might be more of a challenge. So, you know, it, it is essentially a macromolecule. If you look at these things in a, a fine, you know, a high-resolution microscope, you're essentially seeing a bunch of very tiny particles. You know, I'm talking on scale of 15 nanometers in, in diameter. And, and these are all bonded in, in a macromolecule way. And just like you said, it's it's an amorphous material. So it has a lot of really desirable properties. They'll also try to use these with um, different composite materials, right? Think about in an airplane cabin where a fire could potentially be devastating, right? You don't want it off-gassing any other materials or breaking down uh, in a, you know, a closed environment there. So having something that's not only very heat resistant, but can act as a pretty suitable binder ends up being desirable for these applications. Before we go, we'd like to thank a couple of our sponsors that made the show possible. This month's episode is sponsored by MatMatch. MatMatch is a company that's passionate about material science, and their goal is to help connect materials engineers with the materials providers and suppliers. Their platform is used by over a million engineers each year, and best of all, searching for that perfect material is completely free. So head over to matmatch.com and check out how useful it might be for your next engineering project. We'd also like to give a shout-out to Materials Today from Elsevier. Um, They've been sponsoring us this year. You can visit Materials... No. Uh, The Materials... (laughs) The Materials and Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. You can visit materialstoday.com to stay up to date on the latest happenings in the material science field and read some of the fantastic articles that they've published. If you're like us and you're wanting to learn more about geopolymers, you will notice right away that there is an enormous number of geopolymer-related articles published in where? Materials Today Proceedings. Gotcha. So not surprising that one of the cutting-edge best journals out there is also on top of this emerging class materials, which could be so I- important when it comes to getting rid of Portland cement and replacing it with something more ecologically friendly. Well, at this point, it's pretty much like a sauna in here. Uh, <laughs> I feel like the temperature has risen at least 10 degrees since we closed the door to shut out the birds. So we're going to wrap this up as quickly as possible. Thank you very much for listening to the show. If you have any feedback, feel free to send us an email at materialism.podcast at gmail.com or send us a message on our Instagram at materialism.podcast. And I know that we always say that, but for real, I love reading these emails. I love it. Somebody suggested we do an episode on tree so fuel. Somebody suggested we do an episode on why materials, why study material science, like all these really great subjects. So we love getting those messages. Please do keep sending them. Yeah, it's great to hear from people. You come back from work, you're really tired, and you see a great message from someone who listens to the show, and it, it always puts a smile on our faces. So definitely reach out. Or maybe if you have any questions about a topic that we brought up or if you want to sponsor an episode, uh, feel free to reach out for us. We're, we're always looking to, to chat with fellow people who are interested in the topic. Huge shout-out to Alphabot and Colabyte for making the music for the podcast. They do a great job, and we really enjoy having their music here. All right. Catch you next time. The next time. Fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton. The makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world. 
and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>